There's nothing worse than an unfinished story. A, a cliffhanger at the end of something that leaves you unresolved and wondering what happens next. I mean, I love a rom-com. Uh, a rom-com finishes in the best possible way for a film. Every one knows what happens. They get together, they love each other, and they live happily ever after. There is a beginning, there is a middle, there is an end, and then I can put that story down and I can put it to one side and leave it. Yet so many movies and stories don't finish that way. They finish with an unresolved ending. And the worst of all for this, the worst movie of all time for this, was Inception, in my opinion. If you've seen this film, it's a great film. It is gripping, it is interesting. But right at the end of the film, the main character spins this spinning top, which is his way of knowing whether he is in a dream or he is awake and back in reality. If it falls over, he's awake and he's back in reality. If it stays spinning, he remains in the dream. And the final scene of this film is infuriating because it's spinning and you never see whether it stops or whether it keeps going. So you never know whether he is in a dream or he's back in reality. It's so frustrating. Was he still in a dream? Was he still there? Did any of it ever really happen? What actually happened next? Did he make it home to his kids? Did you see his children's faces? I think I saw his children's faces. It was infuriating and it, it sparked so much discussion and debate afterwards. Twitter went mad with it. I remember YouTube videos explaining what happened at the end of Inception, all speculating, was he still in a dream, wasn't he? but they all differed in their opinions as well. Everyone had a different opinion on why he was asleep and why he was awake. Now, I love the book of Acts that we are coming to the end of today. I love the journey that Luke, the author of it, has taken us on through this book, how he started with the ascension of Jesus, how he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the way that the church was, was born, the spirit-filled church was born in Jerusalem, how we saw the first martyr, Stephen, and how God took that horrible situation and used it to spread his church across the whole region and the news about Jesus Christ, how God repeatedly used failures like Peter and persecutors like Paul to do mighty deeds and miracles in his name, and how the worst enemy of Christianity there became its most famous missionary. I love how we've seen how God's people came to agree that his grace and the good news for Jesus wasn't just for one people, but was for everybody, no matter what background they were from. And how church planting starts in this wonderful story. And we see churches planted across Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and on into Rome at the end of the story. But as we close this story off today, there is one thing I really dislike about Luke's account in Acts. And it's like Inception. Luke is the Christopher Nolan of the authors of the books of the Bible. He doesn't resolve his story. In Acts 28.30, as we close off this book, he says that Paul gets to Rome 
and he preached there for two whole years at his own expense without hindrance to those who would listen. But then it finishes. We don't know what happens next. Romans 15.24 tells me that one of the key reasons that Paul wanted to go to Rome was to use it as a stepping stone to get to Spain, where he really wanted to preach the gospel as well. But we also know that he was awaiting trial before Caesar here, where he could have died at the end of Acts. Which was it, Luke? What happened next? Did he go on to Spain? Are there more amazing stories of how God used Paul to sow seeds of the gospel in people's lives? Or did his end, does his story end here? Was he killed in Rome? Just one more chapter, James, just an Acts 29 would have cleared this all up. It would have given us that happy ending. You could have just written even one more line, Luke, and then he lived happily ever after. And I would have been so happy with that. Would have just finished everything off nicely. And people have debated ever since whether Paul made it to Spain or whether he did die in Rome. There are Twitters and there are debates on the internet about that still going today. The truth is, though, no matter how much I want to finish the story of Acts, I shouldn't actually try. Because just as Christopher Nolan deliberately left us with a feeling of unfinished business, that's exactly the same feeling that the author wants to leave us with in Acts, at the end of Acts. That this story of the birth of the church, the move of the power of the spirit, and the nations coming to know God's love is incomplete. It is deliberately an unfinished story. But why? Why does Luke want to leave us with this feeling? Why does he want us to have this sense of unfinished business 2,000 years later? Well, to get the answer to this, we actually have to go to another part of the Bible, the letter of 1 Peter, who writes his letter for the purpose of encouraging and teaching all of the local churches, the communities of God's people that had been planted and started right the way across the Roman Empire in the book of Acts by the original apostles and by Paul. And in his letter, he writes two incredible verses that could easily be overlooked to these local churches, which I think completely explains the reason Acts is left unfinished. Let me just take you there. It's in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, where he writes to local churches this, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These two verses are amazingly rich, telling us how God views his church and what it was created for. But essentially, Peter, if you boil it right down, is teaching us that the local church is the place where the unfinished story of Acts is to be continued. The location where the next chapters of this incredible adventure and move of his spirit will take place. Acts is unfinished because where Paul's place in God's story ends, the local church's story in God's story 
place in God's story begins. I mean, Mark Driscoll taught, caught this truth wonderfully in the late 90s when he named the networks of churches he was a part of, the Acts 29 network. In this name, he grasped that they were the continued story of Acts, the next chapter. I just want to explain this a bit further by looking at a couple of words and phrases in this short passage that point to the local church being the next chapter in God's story. Firstly, let's look at this word chosen. Peter's first words here are to call the local churches a chosen race. I mean, what a lovely word chosen is. It's a great word. One of my favourite thoughts in all the world is that my wife chose me to spend the rest of her life with. I know I love it as well when friends choose to spend time with me. I One of my favourite moments in the church was where a prophet picked me out amongst other people, spoke some wonderful truths over my life. He chose me in a crowd, even in its most basic form. Being chosen is a great thing. I don't know if any of you remember waiting in line to be picked for a team. If you were chosen, it was phenomenal. If you remained till last, it was awful. When we look at Paul's life, here and the way it starts. When he was saved, one of the things God makes plain about him is that he was chosen. Acts 9.15, God says about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Out of all the men and women on earth at that point in time that God could have picked, this verse tells us that God picked Paul out to play on his team and play a role in his team. And what's more in this verse, we see we chose him for an incredible task here, to be one who carried his name amongst the nations. I mean, representing the name of another is a bit of a lost thing in our culture. The closest things we have are ambassadors who represent the interests of nations in foreign lands. But to represent a name is a little more intimate than that. It's a bit more family. It's where our actions are so closely associated with a person that we speak and act on their behalf. And what we say and we do will affect how people view and understand that person. It's a place of extreme honour and trust where a person entrusts to you responsibility for how they will be viewed and understood and remembered in the world. And God chose Paul to be his representative in this fashion, to be the one that people looked at to find out who he was. He was chosen for this purpose. And as we look back at this verse in Peter, he uses the same term chosen for local church communities. In fact, he calls them a chosen race, a holy nation and a people for his own possession in verse nine here. Now, these are all words and phrases pulled straight out of passages in the Old Testament, like Exodus 9, 19 verse five, Deuteronomy seven verse six, 2 Samuel seven twenty three to 24, that God previously applied to Israel to show how out of how all the peoples of the earth and nations in the world, they had been the ones chosen by him to represent him and his name in all the earth. 
I mean, it is remarkable here that Peter would now apply this language that was given to the great apostle Paul and to the nation of Israel to these newborn local churches. But he is saying clearly here now, out of all the people and institutions in the world, God has not chosen a special individual or a nation state or a great wealthy business to be the place where his where people can best see what he looks like or can learn about who he truly is. He chose the local church, the gathering together of people who know Jesus, to together be his ambassadors and carriers of his name to all the earth. The next word I want to zone in on here in verse 9 is priest. The word priest or priesthood as it is here. If you are like me, this word conjures up all kinds of images of men in robes with pointy hats and staffs who speak in a strange way, liturgies and old languages that I don't really understand. But stripped back, the heart and purpose of a priest is a little bit more simple than this in the Bible. A priest was someone who simply had the job of taking two broken halves of something and being the one who stood in the gap to see them fixed back together. That was a priest's job. And namely, specifically, the brokenness between God and us. On one hand, the priest would do this by taking the message of God that his arms were wide open that his forgiveness was there to be had and his hand was outstretched, ready to be taken. On the other, the priest would guide and signpost people back towards God and would help them overcome barriers that stood between them and God, teaching them how to repent, teaching them who they were meant to be in God, how they were meant to live in God and how they could receive God's forgiveness and mercy in their lives bringing them back together. And this is again is a great summary of what we have seen the apostles and Pauls do in Acts. Taking the gospel Paul did wherever he went, the message that Jesus had come to make a perfect way for God and man to be joined back together and teaching people that all they needed to do was receive the work of Jesus on their behalf received the fact that he lived a perfect life so they didn't have to live up to a standard. That he died the perfect death in their place so they didn't have to know death or ever see, receive the wages of their sin and wrongdoing. And that he was born to life anew by the power of God's spirit so that they could be led into a new kind of life with God. Paul was anointed to do this. Wherever he went, he stood in the gap, in every situation with the gospel at hand. Being a priest to the nations, he saw people drawn back to God. He saw them at one again, atoned again to God with him. And here Peter says simply that the local church is now the place with that same calling to see the two halves joined back together to be the priesthood who will help fix that brokenness between God and man. But here he adds another verse in, a word in verse 9 that we shouldn't overlook, that this job of, to this job of priestly fixing, that's the word royal. He says, as the church does this world, this work of fixing the world which is broken, he, they do it from a position not of poverty, 
but of astounding privilege, where each local church has been adopted to being part of the household of God with access to infinite princely riches for the task he has called us to, to help us restore God to man. That's the second word, priest. Finally, I want to zoom in on the word proclaim. Here, Peter says that the church is now the one to proclaim the excellencies of what God did through Jesus. Have you seen the uh, movie Disney's Aladdin? It, it's probably better than Inception. If you disagree with that, feel free to put it in the YouTube comments as we go ahead. And whoever's anchoring today can, can deal with that. But I think it's better because it finishes. But in this movie, there is a scene where Prince Ali comes into Agrabah to court the hand of Princess Jasmine. And before him goes Jeannie, singing and dancing about how flipping amazing Prince Ali is, trumpeting his arrival with song and dance and displays of his majesty and wonder, telling of his riches, bravery, strength, power and wisdom, so that no one in the kingdom could fail to be impressed with him when he arrived. And this is a great example of what it is to proclaim or trumpet excellencies. And again, this is a great summary of what Paul and the apostles did wonderfully, both in word and deed in their lives. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul shows how he spoke about Jesus so that others could know his excellencies. 1 Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, what a proclamation of magnificence. And we have seen uh, through our journey through Acts how Peter, then Paul, brought a taste of these excellencies of Jesus to earth as well, healing the sick, raising Eutychus from the dead, preserving, persevering in all situations in joy and seeing cities transformed. And here again in this passage, we see a passing on of this baton and purpose to the local church. When it comes to the task of proclaiming excellencies, he's saying the local church is now the lampstand. It's now the city on a hill where his glory and power will be most vividly seen in history. That as we gather to pray, praise, step out in faith, love one another fiercely, persevere together in joy, creatively prophesy and encourage that it's here that he will be trumpeted about and the high walls of our land will fall before his majesty. He is creator. He is healer. He is restorer. He is magnificent king of all. But the world doesn't know him. The local church is the epicentre of where he can now be known and seen in all his excellencies. I mean, I hope you see here that in the language of chosen, in priest and proclaimer, Peter is passing on the baton for the unfinished story of Acts to the next generation. Only here, he's not applying it to one individual, but to a very specific group of people, the local church. He is saying, church, you together 
are the continuation of this story which Luke started to document in Acts. I mean, he makes it clear here that it's not an individual or a person, uh, but a people in verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you are. Church, you are a people with the most magnificent, rich calling and purposes together. I mean, uh, part of my story is has taken me a long time to even begin to get over my individualism and start to understand how God now has a people focus. I remember uh, as a young Christian, I was out in Brazil and I felt God speak to me about a move to Leeds. And he said that when I got there, he would teach me what it was to be part of a community. Yet when I got there, I vividly remember a conversation with a guy who is now a good friend of mine and leads a church over in Leeds, where he wanted me to be a part of his community group. And I said to him, don't expect to see me at your group. I'll join in, but I'm not really into this Christianity together stuff. I prefer to do my own thing. I will bob in and out when I can, when it suits me, but I'm a bit of a solo Christian. I cringe at this now. But that was pretty much verbatim what, you know, 19-year-old Matt thought. You see, at this point in my life, even when God had begun to speak to me about church and community, my view of it was more shaped by the world than it was by God. Do you know, I thought it was about leaders wanting to place rules around me and control my life and take my money. A band I used to listen to in my teenage years summed this up nicely. They were called Skunk and Nancy and they sang lyrics like they they want your soul and your money, your blood and your bones. Not me, mate. I love Jesus. He'd won my heart. That was a given. But the last thing I was after was some organised institution taking my time and my money and my energies, using my personal faith and turning it to some part of a machine for their ends. I was going to keep distant at that point. But slowly, very slowly and surely, God graciously led me and put a lot of people around me uh, with a lot of patience in me. And my heart started to change. I learned the blessing of having brothers and sisters in Christ. I was taught God's word well and came in contact with this passage from 1 Peter and others like 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about the church being the very body of Christ now on earth. And Ephesians 5, where he talks about the church being his beautiful bride I came to understand that the church was the apple of God's eye, the centrepiece of his intentions. I had others bear with me when I was sad, encourage me, guide me. I knew their love. I experienced the wonder of worshipping and praying with others in the spirit. I saw miracles happen as people were prayed for. I learned about gifts and saw the power of prophecy in action. I saw how people were accepted in the church like no other place on earth. And that the bigoted images I had of it were just, and I soaked in, were so wrong. I learned about church planting like Paul and met absolute faith pioneers going to new places to share the excellencies of God into different cultures. I saw people addressing poverty in their relationships, giving generously to causes. 
and I witnessed amazing, healthy families and marriages and relationships built to last on God's foundations. And my fault-finding, critical heart started to fade. I started to wash over the imperfections that I saw because I started to love the church, address the biases. I began to fall in love with the church as Jesus did. To see its endless possibilities and potential and capacity to uniquely proclaim the love and power of God in this world in the way that was so needed. And where I find myself now, 18 years later, is six years into a wonderful adventure with some of my best friends having a rich and fulfilling set of purposes from God. In a city I never intended to come to, in a church that since its conception has brought me great new relationships, started multiple charities and already seen baptisms, salvations and healings in a time frame in which most newborns have only just learned to read and write. Freedom's church's part in God's story is just getting started and that is so exciting. And as I look back now, I'm so glad that God changed my heart and I began to understand some of his purposes for the church. I want to finish just with a very simple question today to you. Have you grasped God's heart for the local church? Have you grasped it? Has it taken hold of your heart? Have you understood that it is here by being part of it wholeheartedly where the unfinished story of Acts continues and Acts 29 is still being written? Have you understood that although this is the last preaching our series on Acts, it's just the start of Freedom Church's part in the great story of God and that in this local church or your local church, if you're listening from other areas, is where you will see and be a part of the same things that Peter and Paul saw in their lifetimes. I mean, maybe this morning you're just getting your head round the Jesus and the wonderful salvation and the way he brings us back together to God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but still have the world's view of the church, not God's perspective governing your heart towards it. Maybe you've backed off from the church because you've been hurt by it and no longer believe God's word about it. Wherever you're at, I want to invite you anew right now as we close to allow the Holy Spirit to heal you and captivate you anew with the love and purpose that Jesus has put into his local church. And as lockdown eases and the doors of his church start to be flung open wide again, I want to invite you to come and play your part afresh in writing the next chapter, Acts 29, with us anew. God bless you.